This is Subjects in Process, a podcast where we explore the limits of our knowledge, uh, try to understand the things we take for granted, and work to see things from new points of view. I'm Jeff. And I'm Jonathan. That was so, an amazing discussion we had last episode about that uh, Derek Delgadio, Derek uh, Delgadio, show, eh? Oh yeah, well, like we must have spent like maybe five minutes of that entire episode talking about it. Well, we talked the <laughs> entire time about the title, yes, <laughs> which is in and of itself, and maybe as just a quick recap, uh, the 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 concept of in and of itself is talking about the essence of something, the essence of things, yeah. and we we talked on let's just say three key notions that revolve around uh, understanding the essence of things, and that is the the universal the concepts our understanding of them this kind of the mm -hmm. mental um way in which we categorize the world and attempt to understand it yeah uh, which is then counterbalanced with the particular and realizing that our ideas are all abstractions of the real here and now in which we live and make our choices right yeah. and the choice of uh the choices we make in a world of uh, finitude and individual instantiations is always uh, a choice for something and a choice against something else. We don't live in an abstract infinite realm. Yeah. And, and in, in both of those somewhere, there's this, uh, the reality of the meaningfulness of it and what we experience as significant and important. And um, it's the, maybe the, inner world, the interiority of something. I mean, and the, I only worry about the inner world because I really, that it feels to me like there's some sort of like, there's the inner and the out, outer at mm, play, yeah. right? So there's yeah. the relation of it, right? Is something, what is something in and of itself outside of its relations to things? And yeah, I, I think of a book that I was told was going to come into existence, but never did. And it's called a rage against it's not rage against essence, but it was something like rage against uh, nature. And the, the idea behind it uh, was that he was recognizing in our modern society, this, um, inability to acknowledge the givenness of things as right. having a nature and right. so um not 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 wanting to deny either the importance the the significance of something existing in relation with others yeah but also acknowledging that it has its own interiority right which uh is in dialogue may maybe with... maybe the the because i understand what you're saying about the pushback to aligning interiority with meaningfulness. Yeah. I think maybe the the outstanding question is we like we all are on the same page with univer the universal. I think and we're all on the same page in terms of what is the particularity, but what where where we are still trying to understand is where is meaning. 
Like where, right. when you locate meaning, is it between particularities? Is it between particular, the particular and the universal? Uh, is it within the particularity? You know, like, I think that's, that'll be hopefully where a lot of our discussions go. I think on Absolutely. this podcast is I think so. trying to pinpoint yeah. some of that. Yeah. And, and so, um, this discussion, we're going to get a little more into the actual kind of uh, the goings on and the narrative, uh, at least conceptually, of yeah. the magic show, because we do want to avoid spoilers. Uh, as we said before, if we accidentally do some, we will cut them out of this episode. But we do recommend people go and watch Derek Delgadio's In and of Itself. It's yeah. not so much a, a roller coaster ride as a a slow moving suspense. I read a hilarious uh, review of it yes. uh, on, I think it was Google reviews or whatever. And it was a guy who had actually gone to uh, the show Yes, and he said, um, curse you, Stephen Colbert is how he opens the review. Cause he said, you told me on your show that this was going to be an amazing like magic show. And I was so excited to go. Yes. And my daughters bought me tickets and we all went and it was the most disappointing thing I'd ever seen. <laughs> <laughs> right. Which I can imagine. So it's, I think it is important to set the tone of, and I almost feel like, um, I'm sure, I bet being there would help, but you need to be prepared to do your own work in mm. appreciating this. And I will admit, I like slow movies because I like thinking about them and when they move too fast i'm just not i just can't my i can't think that fast yeah so uh, movies with a little bit of gaps in it is helpful and uh let's be honest derek delgadio's show has a lot of space in it yes yeah some yeah uh so yeah there are i think maybe five magic tricks maybe there's six by the end right uh yeah. and that's they, a they should have said that you know uh, yes. A six-trick magic show. A six-trick uh. magic show. Uh, a one-man dialogue with six magic tricks. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> it should not have been called a magic. Yeah, uh, you know, it's it's not so much a magic show with a dialogue with a monologue as right. it is a monologue with a few magic tricks. Now that being said, I did read that Penn and Teller. Yes. Uh, uh, Penn, I think they went individually to the show, mm. and I think Teller said to Penn, I don't know how he's doing some of these. Yeah. Right. Which is sort of their thing is to is be like, thing. can we figure out how, how this is being done? Yes. And, uh, and so he sent uh, Penn in to basically like disrupt, disrupt the show. Like, like, so basically not, don't follow the instructions yeah. so that if you don't follow the instructions, will you break the magic trick? Wow. And he didn't. He didn't wow. apparently like, yes. like D Derek Delgadio was just like able to take it in stride. And so yes. they, they have a lot of admiration for him. So the magic tricks are very, are very good. The problem yes. with them, I think, and he actually talks about this, I think. Yes. They yes. are so, he does them so well that they don't feel like good. Does that make yes. sense? Like Ex exactly. they're not impressive, I, right? Like you're, you're so the issue for me is I know uh, a, a few tricks that magicians do. And so, okay, like when I watch certain um, magic shows, I, they are not, they don't wow me in the same way because even when I can't quite pinpoint where they're doing it, 
I know the types of tricks that they're using, right? Yeah. Often the magic is not in the spot you thought it was. It's right. somewhere else. Yeah. And and of course, and that's true here too, right? And so uh, because they're so seamless and you have no idea, but you kind of, you do have a sense of, yeah, I mean, he must have forced something that looked random, but wasn't. Right. You know, or yeah. something of that sort. But it's also, uh, he talks about it in the show where he says he immediately came his first experience of a magic trick. He fell in love with it. Yeah. And he talks about how much he practiced the manual dexterity required to perfect this magic. But um, what's interesting, I think, is that he's suggesting that for him, the love of magic was in the craft. Yes. And he loved the the manual nature of these tricks and was disillusioned that when he went to perform his magic, yes. all the people loved the illusion. That's all they saw. Right, yeah. And what he loved was the the physical, non-illusory, tactile, concrete execution. Yeah. Yeah. And no one could see what he loved about it. Right, and, other than uh, other magicians. Other other than other magicians, but in this case, we hear not even them. Right, right, right. And so he he set out, and I think we said this, but he set out in this show to try and make magic something that would reveal rather than conceal. Right. Yeah. Um, he actually talked about how he hated doing magic shows and it was his skill it it was like how he you know there's a, a great phrase i like be careful what you get good at um <laughs> there's a a story from ayn rand where there's two architects and one of them uh, loves architecture with his whole being and desires to do it fully as who he is and another one who is seeking um, social acclaim and fame and through their lives they are kind of set up as competitors and they're both very skilled yeah. but the one who's doing it for social gratification eventually comes to find it as empty and meaningless uh. and um He's had this very difficult, these two architects have a very difficult relationship with each other. Yeah. Uh, but in their older age, there's a little more of a mutual respect. Right. And the uh, superficial architect, I don't know what we want to sure. call him. He eventually realizes that he loves um, painting as huh. his kind of primary form. And he purchases this uh, isolated country home and goes and starts spending more and more of his time painting there. And after he's been painting for quite a while, he brings a painting to, um, to this competitor and he says, what do you think? And the, he's the, the one who the true architect looks at him and he says, it's too late. <laughs> you, you can't, you will never be good. You will not, um, you'll never be a great painter. You've devoted yourself to the wrong thing. So um, <laughs> be careful what you get good at. I mean, uh, my personal Anne experience, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, yeah, I, I think 
I'm okay with acknowledging there's some real lessons to be taken there, right? I mean, uh, another story, maybe just too close a parallel to be additionally revealing, but is a man who goes in to talk to a psychologist. He's having a midlife crisis. He's 45 years old. He talks about how he hates his job. He talks about how he has no friends. He doesn't have family. Um, He doesn't have hobbies he's particularly interested in. And he's, and he's really depressed and he'd like help with his depression. Yeah. And the psychologist says to him, you're not depressed. You're (laughs) <laughs> no, and I'm not sure that he actually says that to him. But the point being, all of these things are all the important parts of life that mm. take a lifetime of work. And, uh, and, right. you know, yeah. Uh, and so Derek Delgadio is good at being a magician. And yeah. he's, he's in some ways disappointed with how that plays out in the world. And it's his means of making an income. But uh, in this show, perhaps uh could be described as maybe his first magic show he's happy with oh interesting Um, and uh and it's um it's done him well so that's good you know this it's interesting it's interesting because like i i always have this at the end of magic shows or even Mm -hmm. during them this deep disappointment because even though i love the illusion because i know it's an illusion i just don't care about it like in some ways right like even you know he's doing different things and he's uh you know you doing mentalism he does some mentalism in it which is kind of interesting yeah and it's all interesting but it's not real yeah and the thing is for him that perspective on magic as craft that's real yeah it's just like it's like going into something with the expectation that this is going to reveal the in and of itself of reality, yeah. Yeah. which is what we want from magic, right? Yeah. Like, it's like, I don't know if you've seen The Prestige. I have, yes. It's one of my favorite movies. Like, it's probably yeah. in my top five. Wow. Um, and I just, I love it so much because at the heart of it is this distinction between um, sort of an expectation that maybe there is a deeper reality that we mm-hmm. can get to. Mm-hmm. And I mean, it's exploring the cost of that, right? Versus uh, an illusion that has a deep reality that's all around it, right? Like, yeah. uh, I don't want to spoil anything, although the movie's been out for like 15 years, so probably it's okay. But, you know, like like there's magicians in there who are so committed to their craft that they cut off their own finger, right? Yeah. In order to make this illusion work. Yeah. And that commitment in some ways that the the movie is saying that is what is good right the mm-hmm. good is this person committed to the, to the craft mm-hmm. the 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 bad is the people who are trying to find ways of actually like i don't know get, getting around the craft uh you know the 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 evil rich guy in the prestige is the one who gets around the craft, uses his resources to get around the craft and do real magic. Like it's real. Uh, so he's, yes. he's doing stuff that is like, like actually occult real yes, uh, or yeah. maybe like extreme science or something like that. Right. Yes. yes. Um, and so the, the thing with magic shows and the thing, even with Derek Delgadio, right. I, I loved the show and I, I, I loved how, uh, how much it made me think about things, but it also, and I think this is the point. It also mm-hmm. at the end leaves you kind of leaves me dissatisfied, right? Because mm-hmm. I'm like, 
he's revealing something to these people in his in his, the magic that he's doing, mm-hmm. um, right? And he's creating an experience for people. But is it just the noble lie? Is it just like the lie that like reveals? Um, so, I don't know. So for me, um, I didn't leave disappointed. Um, I I've watched it a few times now, and I cry every time I watch it. And to me, the magic is just entirely uh, secondary, or the magic of um, of his tricks. Maybe we could call them tricks. Yeah. The real he does several tricks, but the real magic is uh, how he uses a piece of entertainment to direct us towards things that matter. Right. And, and that's, um, and so when he's talking about magic is revealing, he's definitely not revealing how the tricks are done. No, no. But he is, I think he's causing us to reflect on our own lives and uh, that, and see what's really there. Right. Yeah. I, the, this notion of the, the essence of things. Right. And uh, we talked a bit about Socrates and the unexamined life not being right. worth living and whether or not that means an intellectual examination. I like, I don't think it has to mean that, but yeah. a, um, a conscious attention to your own, uh, to your own happiness, which remind, we will tie this back to the notion of, uh, do you do you have the strength to examine your own life, or do you need to numb out the the reality of it with uh, at the bottom of a bottle, right? Or right, right. Um, or using or at, at a magic show, right? Like like I think that's and right. This is the thing: yeah. is that coming face to face with my disappointment over magic shows. Yes. Right. I think what he's, I think he's doing this on purpose, right? Like Mm -hmm. this is why he, why the medium of a magic show is so effective to his overall argument. Right. Which is Mm -hmm. that what does it reveal about you that you just so want uh, a deeper reality than the reality that you're stuck with. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, like uh, I don't want to go into the spoilers of the, of the show. Right. But there's these moments in it where, he says something and it's like, it is like magic words Mm -hmm. because what he's saying to somebody is revealing their inner heart, right? It's revealing their longings, the ways that they're disappointed in life and the ways that they displace that disappointment into a magic show or whatever. Right. Like, yeah. And, and even better is the fact that he, he also reveals their own deep satisfaction. Yeah. Yeah. Right. He he yeah. he he shows them uh, these these soup. There are so many superficial emptinesses, but you have deep and rich meaning in your life that you should attend to. Yeah. Um, you should write them back. Right. Yeah. And the um, uh, I think when I think about. So so when here we're kind of talking about right tricks versus magic, you know, and. A lot of, for me personally, as a uh, intellectual nerdy guy, right? Magic always had a deep appeal because it was this notion of um, a, a less physical way by which someone might have power. Hmm. And, you know, my interest in fantasy novels, right? So, 
Yeah. Uh, the the magician was always the character of the most interest because uh, they had a kind of power in this world that was not accessible to the warrior, right? Right. Or yes. Uh, or the king. Yeah. And uh, this the occult. I wonder if the occult probably is more naturally attractive two nerdy types right yeah who uh totally. who, who who might struggle in the world in sort of other social social ways through which people normally achieve acclaim and status yeah. and power yeah and when you talk about your disappointment one of the interesting things is so i think m magic is uh is impressive but in our dismissal of it, I almost wonder, I mean, so there's a couple of things. So one, it's rarely relevant, right? Right. If, if we could achieve tremendous social, you know, if you could build a bridge with magic, we yeah. might be more interested in it. Right. And so our, our disappointment is, um, is partially the fact that I think it's never relevant, which is great for nerds, right? Because they seem to have a different understanding. We seem to have a different understanding right. of what might be relevant. Yeah. But also, I wonder if there's a part of it where it it appears as a form of power, right? This power to control others' perceptions, um, you know, similar to the the mage in the fantasy story. This person seems to have these crazy powers, and yeah. the the dissatisfaction for me feels a when I when I leave with that attitude because I generally try to work to um, let myself continue to feel the wonder of the magic show, right? Because I think part of the dissatisfaction is actually the so one screw you. You know, I like I you you're you're pretending to have power, but guess what? I can just dismiss you. Right. And then two, that when we don't when we can't understand something, we sometimes want to dismiss it. You know, I think about right. as oh, and this is actually a, just a, like a little glorious story for me as <laughs> a nerd in junior high when we came to the ping pong unit in phys ed. Yes, I was actually good at ping pong, and I just <laughs> so clearly remember my experience of the jocks and the popular people uh, in my high school and junior high life was actually, I feel like I was blessed with a, a year of people who were relatively nice. Right. But this happened to be this one jock who was not actually nice. Right. And I beat him at ping pong, and he just put down the paddle and said, I don't even like ping pong anyway. <laughs> and, and I just think of that story so often in life. I remember um, Matt Weeb claims he really loves board games, but of course, one of the greatest board games, Settlers of Catan, right. he, uh, he just claimed he doesn't like it. He just doesn't think it's that yes. good. And I'm pretty sure it's because he lost his first game. <laughs> <laughs> so, which of course is just me being ridiculous but i just always think of the story i don't even like ping pong anyway yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. totally i totally. don't even like magic anyway yeah yeah kind of uh... it's interesting because i i agree i think that's often what people associate with magic mm -hmm. um and like even so i don't know if you know charles williams he was one of the inklings uh, he was friends with C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Okay. Tolkien, and but he was interested in ma like real magic. Like he yeah. was part of the uh, the what is it? Something of the 
Order of the Rosy Dawn or something mm-hmm. like that. And he was mm-hmm. like connected with Aleister Crowley and uh, folks Who's like Aleister that. Aleister Crowley? He's he's the guy who wrote the Satanic Bible. Oh, okay. uh, and and I think I think he wrote that. And he was also deeply involved in magic yes. uh, with uh, Yates and some of these guys. Right, everyone was into magic back then. Yeah. Um, and it was real magic, like yeah. quote unquote real, right? Like yes. in a sense of yeah. like you know Rosicrucian kind of stuff and yes you know alchemical whatever okay rosicrucian um, say more Ro- rosicrucian uh w- like that is a uh occult movement i think from like the medieval period but maybe it was later than that yeah. uh it it literally just means rosy cross uh okay. but it, it was about it was i think overlapped with certain guilds uh, yeah. from the period yeah uh, so some of that freemason stuff and, and yeah. things like that anyways the early the earliest ones actually all just got mocked out of town because they called themselves uh, the followers of the rosy cross right and uh, they they yeah. they were the the rosy crossies but yeah. then they they changed the it Rosie to Crucian. rosa like, Ooh, that then, sounds mysterious yeah, yeah exactly yeah. Yeah. true fact yeah. um the so anyways charles williams the thing about him right is that he was someone who just wanted to know and, he, mm-hmm. and uh, wanted the power of that, mm-hmm. right? Like you can think of even people like Faust, right? Yeah. Like yes. Dr. Faustus, right? Which is this story of a guy who wants to know and that knowledge is a form of power uh, yeah. that he's seeking. Yeah. And I think the thing for me, when I encounter a magic show, it's not so much that I want the power of that. Mm-hmm. It's that I want like, I want to be ushered into a reality that makes more sense. I don't want to have the power, but the idea that someone could be the one who reveals it, I don't, it's like they're almost, it's almost like they're the priest or something. Right. Mm. Like, and the idea of a magician, I mean, I guess something even like uh, the sorcerer's apprentice, right? Like that's the the magician as, as the powerful one, which I think is, is maybe the main way that we think about magicians. Sorry. So what's the sorcerer's apprentice in uh, Fantasia? where uh, Mickey Mouse is like, um, he's like the apprentice to this sorcerer. And uh, do you know this? Have you seen Fantasia? I have when I was. Oh, okay. Nine. Oh, okay. Yeah. So anyways, there's this, uh, you know, sorcerer and uh, uh, Mickey Mouse is his helper. And then one day the sorcerer leaves his magic book open and he goes away and Mickey starts having these like fantasies that he's going to become the new sorcerer with all the power. And he's able to like, you know, take over the world and that kind of thing. And he starts kind of just waving a wand. And then all of a sudden things get really out of hand because he starts bringing the brooms to life and the brooms are going to do his work for him. Right. Yeah. And then the brooms start doing too much work and they get, you know, it's sort of the uh, AI. It's it's the, uh, the fear of, of artificial intelligence before the, this time. Um, So, so, yeah. so just, just to kind of, for me, the, that idea of the power that magic has seems meaningful and I understand that, but it's almost like it's the, it's the, it's the re- resolution of my inner disappointment, right? It's like magic is the thing that you could, you hope will fill the lack, yeah. right? Yeah. And and the disappointment with magic is that you know that it's it's not going to that it's not going to no and that's so good so I mean I wanted uh, I think let's just carry on with that because uh, there's there's uh, a song. 
by a band called Yes Nice, and it's called uh, Waiting for a Miracle. Yeah. And it's about this contemporary modern abstract artist and whose name I don't remember, but uh, I'll see if I can get it for the show notes. And he was very much seeking um, access to the deep inner meaning. And it wasn't so much, it wasn't about power for him. Right. Um, you know, I, I would say it's unfortunate that it seems, it feels to me pretty clearly like he was, um, he was so desperate for um, complete, perfect acceptance and connection and love that, uh, that nothing was really satisfying mm. um, and was probably suffered from depression right one of his works of art is just video of him crying oh. right and that you know it's yeah. this sort of oversharing that right. is is too much but it's um and and maybe it's even sad how misdirected his efforts in seeking what he was looking for were yeah but the lengths to which he would go it, um in the end he became so dissatisfied with with the imperfections and uh, that in this world that he wanted a real miracle he didn't right. want any of these tricks anymore and yeah. so he got into a little boat and he set sail from new york to try to get to london in a tiny boat and was never seen again right yeah um yeah. and uh but and and so and i can i can sympathize with that uh, with that longing. And I admit, like, I mean, in my younger days where uh, I would just uh, wallow in, you know, where you almost get to a, a form of self-pity right. where now I would say uh, something like just get out and do something for somebody and right. feel a little better. Right. Yeah. Um, but, uh, but at the same time, I, I worry that uh never remembering that mode of being not acknowledging it and not seeing the intense need and vulnerability of people it's important just to kind of remember that that desire for something bigger and yeah yeah absolutely which i think is what like part of what delgadio wants to show you is that there are sources of um of miracles and I almost, I hesitate to share the quote, which I believe has been mistakenly attributed to Einstein, but this notion yeah. of uh, either everything is a miracle or nothing is, right? right. And when what, what is the difference between real magic and deep science? Yeah, um, it's uh, and, Arthur C. Clarke, right? Uh, the, who says, uh, any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. Yeah, totally. Because you're getting into objects that at the base of which we have no further explanation, right? Every explanation is just uh, reference to a deeper, more complicated layer of objects. And so yeah. either you get to the bottom where there's no further explanation. It just is the way it is. Right. Uh, which is, uh, which can be taken as nothing's a miracle it just is the way it is but you could also just say the sheer givenness completely 
unexplainable mm-hmm. is the miracle in itself, or it regresses infinitely, which right. I mean is is its own Pretty kind amazing. of miracle. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. So so I mean yeah. uh and and uh and of course in science its connection to meaning can be can be lost, uh, but the givenness of our own experience, which mm-hmm. there's a part of me that is always some. I've heard people suggest that the most um, philosophical topic, and this is probably only true of um, of the analytic tradition more so than the continental tradition, where the analytic tradition is just very analytical scientific right. logical yeah uh, but the discussion of mind and consciousness yeah is kind of the the most fundamentally philosophical topic of the analytical tradition where it they are confronted with magic right. and yeah. <laughs> of what consciousness is and so uh, on the level of physics that magic breaks down to the tiniest particles yeah. but in our daily living it you don't have to go further than just the raw givenness of your experience which uh we cannot explain in purely physical terms right um where you know i mean daniel dennett has a book called consciousness explained but i think most good philosophers well they will potentially appreciate his efforts to explore all avenues of understanding would call his book consciousness ignored oh interesting (laughs) burn um, that's a real burn (laughs) yeah i daniel dennett is is for such an annoyingly uh reductionist philosopher who is set on persistently repeating his own position he's actually delightfully humble and from what i understand a great guy to know so right um, i heard he kind of got like lumped in with the four uh horsemen of the apocalypse atheist guys yes just because like the news needed a fourth person i guess so yeah i never i don't know about how they got chosen but i just know that he is he's he's called one of them which is hilarious yeah because like um i mean the four horsemen of the apocalypse being Sam Harris, Richard Dawkins, Christopher uh, Hitchens, Christopher Hitchens, and Daniel Dennett. I mean, how many Pretty people know who Daniel Dennett of, is? Right. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. And, and and no very different kinds of people. <laughs> and very different kinds of people. And yeah, and Daniel Dennett is by far the most um, uh, embedded in academic philosophy. Right. The show, so magic appears as this source of power, right? And it can to us. And maybe we do these days, it can be like pretty significantly written off as tricks, right? That we know won't be fulfilling in that way. Um, But there's something that's significant about the mystery of it, just like the givenness of our experience has this mystery to it where and and that is what the narrative is seeking us to reflect on 
the experience that we have, whether we understand it, whether we can explain it, the complexity of it, and and I mean our experience of our experience, and right. um, and maybe trying to show that deeper magic that is present in this inexplicably givenness of of what we face yeah. every day, and so he starts mm. off with. Um, a little story, a story about a story, actually, which is classic for uh, fictional writers who are seeking to um, immerse you in a world where you right. don't know what's real and what's not. Right. And yes. uh, which is great because well done fiction, of course, is describing the deepest things about what it means to be human. And yes. in that sense are, of course, true. Yes. Um, and but that can be hard for us. And it's nice sometimes to be confused about what's true. So you remember to take it seriously. Exactly. Yes. And so he, he talks about his trip to Spain with a friend and he meets a stranger who tells him a story uh, about somebody else. And at the end of telling this story, the stranger in the bar says, you are this guy. Right. He says, you are the character from my story. And uh, Delgadio spends, is just completely thrown off by how this stranger can come to him and and name him as yes. the character from a story that he's telling. Yeah. And he's looking for parallels between himself and this story. The story yeah. uh, happens to be about a guy who serves on a ship and Delgadio notes that he was not wearing a sailor's costume. Right. Uh, so that doesn't necessarily <laughs> seem to be, he's not sure how it happens, but um, what's this becomes the, the running theme through the show in which he realizes that uh, the name he has been given by this man is, yep. is who he is. Yes. And, and this story does represent um, who he is. And I think it's interesting to think about the concept of being being named, named. Yeah. by by somebody else. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. It's uh I don't remember if we talked about this in the previous episode or not, but uh we've talked about choice a lot, right? Yeah. And uh and at the same time there's this other element of uh, being chosen, mm -hmm. right? Like those seem yeah. like different. And I, I think you were saying, and again, I don't know if we recorded this or not, but you were saying, you know, we are, we have choice, we get chosen, but then we also have the choice of doing what, what do we do with yeah. that experience of being chosen? Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and so the, like, it's, it's um, the notion of, yeah, of being chosen. It's, so it makes me think about, so Hegel, uh, before he wrote Phenomenology of Spirit, he wrote this essay. So in Phenomenology of Spirit, he talks about respect from the other as being this driving force that shapes human interaction and society and eventually the development of knowledge and understanding. Um, but before he wrote that, he wrote this precursor where rather than respect, he was actually making love the central theme. Mm. And 
uh, love and and personhood. So one of the things there's this we talk about objectification of people, right? And yeah. differentiating between persons and objects. Yeah. And significantly, I I think of persons as differentiated from objects in that they resist our control. And, you know, this is often why you see the dehumanization of people uh, mm. and why well, uh, we describe it that way, even. Yeah, exactly. And and um, when when you have too much power, you can dehumanize those around you who are unable to resist your control. Right. And you no longer see them as as persons. And interestingly, um, in your failure to treat them as persons, you dehumanize yourself. And right. so persons are these uh, these people who can who can resist you in very interesting ways. And I think it's worth kind of highlighting how one thing we've talked about how Canadian fiction is sometimes uh, seems like what makes it significant is the fact that they're the only ones talking about Canada. Right. But another thing that is significant about them is that uh, in the history of Canadian literature, uh, place and setting yeah. has played a pretty preeminent role and serves almost as a character uh, in the story. Yes. And I think while these days we have uh, many of us have not such a sense of place, but historically place has been uh, very significant to us. And yeah. um, even thinking specifically maybe about agricultural practices, right. it's this place where you actually, you can personhood, you could put in the way I'm describing, you could put it on a spectrum, right? Mm. In that uh, place and the, the land also yeah. re can resist our control in certain yeah. ways. Yeah. I, and, uh, my, mm. Elliot and I were watching uh, a show last night called uh, American Barbecue Competition or something like that. That's not the name. It was a yeah. better name than that, but it was about yeah. all of these different barbecue experts who just, yeah. you know, do the cue and do, you know, this is a comp competition where they're all, uh, in battle with one another, right? And they're all almost all of them are from the south in yeah. the United States. Yeah. And it's amazing to see how much place is important mm -hmm. for them, right? Yeah. Like and and you know, they all talk about it's like it's not just the food, it's the story that goes yeah. with the food. And that's yeah. that's how you win in these yeah. competitions, right? And so like them they're talking about oh yeah, my grandmother made this, you know, or mm -hmm. we've, this has been, I'm a sixth generation pit master, uh, you know, and, and I, this, I always use, you know, we're from Georgia and we use the Georgia style, whatever. Right. Mm -hmm. And all of that sort of deep embeddedness in where they're mm -hmm. from, mm -hmm. um, which I mean, I, I love that and uh, long for it in some ways, even though when I think about it, I'm like, well, you know, actually I, my family has been in Edmonton for, over a hundred years yeah right like so so there is some of that there but i often think that when if you're especially if you're uh descendants of settlers mm -hmm. in in canada mm -hmm. there is that feeling of dislocation 
Well, and one one of the things that comes to mind for me is, you know, we talked about our role as knowledge workers in our job, right? Mm. Versus Luke's description of making furniture with hand tools and that responsiveness of um, of feeling, understanding the process in your body. Yeah, It's not even something that can be explained. It has to be, uh, there's this role of muscle memory, right? Your body does it over and over again. You don't even know uh, what you're learning. You know, for some reason on your, yeah. Ten thousandth try, suddenly it goes so well, and your your hand is making these thousands of micro adjustments yes. that you're not even consciously aware of. And there's this and the tool uh, back is and part forth, of you. The witch. The tool is part of you. And the tool is part of you. Yes. And and that I think is the difference between your family's presence in Edmonton and a farmer's presence on the land. Right. Right. That farmer, if he goes somewhere else he will not necessarily be able to farm. Um, Whereas uh, if you are a king living in Edmonton, using your knowledge skills, you can just ship off to Vancouver, find a wife and keep doing knowledge skills things there. Right. Right. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And that's just a a made up story. That's just a made up story. Um, And come back to Edmonton, Matt Blythe. Maggie, we want you guys here. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. So, um, and obviously your community, right? I mean, I think in Edmonton, one of the things that's unique about living in such a cold and desolate desolate place is that we are locked up inside with people more than many other places. And there is a a rich kind of community that is uh, present here and chains us to this barren yeah. freezing land yeah uh but uh it's, but it's I think- interesting like the uh the whole idea of being told who you are mm-hmm. right like we are told like or sorry historically people were told who they were yes by their family and community and yes. you know lot in life or whatever it might be right yeah. and to live in this dislocated time where we're knowledge workers because I don't know why, you know, I went into English cause I loved it, but it had and, very little to do with, you know, maybe my family, you know, sort of t- tangential way. Yeah. Right. Because we had books in the house. Yeah. Um, you know, I don't know. Like it's, it's interesting. Even the story that Delgadio tells yeah. some stranger yeah. told him who he was. Yes. And he gloms onto it in some ways, right? Mm-hmm. Because to be told who you are in a time of dislocation is something that you want, right? You That's want right. someone to tell you who you are. Well, and I mean, so uh, in our last episode, you talked about Solon who said, call no man happy till he's dead. Yeah. And this this reality that um, your community, you said, will will say whether you were happy or not. And- the the truth in that is that you are not you don't you don't you're mutually constituted with your community and your significance is found in relationship with them that's yeah. generally where these uh deep meaningful like relationship to the land relationship to your community this is where uh you uh, are known 
right? Yes. This is where you were discovered. And I'm not sure that we, I'm not sure when we might get into this, but I think it's worth just noting that we are also other to ourselves. It's not as though yeah. uh, there's a world out there that we need to discover and we fully know ourselves right. just by virtue of being us. Yeah. Uh, there's journeys of self-discovery, right? And which are also in many ways journeys of self-making, but it doesn't happen by virtue of immediate self-awareness or pure self-will on who you want to be. Mm-hmm. You know, you are as much a part of the world that needs discovering. And to, so to be, you, you often learn about who you are through the eyes of somebody else. I'll even right. say, uh, listening to myself on this podcast, uh, I suddenly hear some of the ways that I talk that I did not recognize mm. before. Right. Yeah. And, um, it's, uh, it's already made me want to be a better listener, right? which is just a, an interesting thing that, uh, it's only your closest friends who are likely ever going to tell you those sorts of things. I guess in a professional environment, sometimes you get these 360 evaluations, <laughs> <laughs> where you send out, uh, you ask other people to anonymously kind of assess your performance in the workplace. But yeah. it's um, that's a real and valuable thing where you actually uh, discover who you are. So first, often, I've heard it also described as your marriage, right? This is where suddenly you're, so many aspects of your selfishness are revealed. Right. Because yeah. when you are this close to another person, um, you realize how much you were just making choices about what benefited you, right? Yeah. And then, of course, you think you've finally got that figured out, and then you have kids and realize, oh right. no, wait, there's there's more there's more selfishness in there. Yeah. And um, the so the story with Hegel to the where he made love the center and this this personhood this uh, the significance of being chosen is there are so many things in life that you can't have by your own will. It's dependent on the will of others. Right. And so the naming by others in many ways is the, the, the thing that decides whether your life is rich and full or right. empty, right? If, uh, if you are named as an outcast, yeah. Then I mean, at one point in time, that was a death sentence, right? Yeah. And if you are named beloved, yeah. then you are you are uh, secure. You are, and more than that, you know, yeah. you've got uh, you've got a place. Um, I I have a story uh, from my job life. Yeah. Uh, which is, you know, I I so I worked for an engineering firm for five years or so while I was finishing my PhD and then I finished it. Um, And a lot for a lot of that time, I just kept thinking, okay, I I am getting a PhD in English. I have a PhD in English. I need to become a professor, right? I want it. I want that. That's what I want to become, right? This is just a way station this time that I'm spending with the, these engineers. Right. And, uh, and I just thought my, the true life is elsewhere, right? My life is I'm supposed to become a professor, mm-hmm. right? I'm going to do this. This is where I'm, this is my calling or whatever. Yeah. And it created this for a lot of those years, just great 
dissatisfaction with Mm -hmm. where I was, where, Mm -hmm. with my lot in life. Right. Just Mm -hmm. like, like, Oh, what is going on here? I'm, I'm low. I'm here doing this work that has nothing to do with my uh, training, right. Nothing to do Mm -hmm. with my, my passions. So at least that's how I describe it to myself. Right. Mm -hmm. And over that time, right. I made, made great friends and I learned lots of things and I did actually, I was doing things that I really enjoyed and Mm -hmm. loved. Right. But, Mm -hmm. but in the back of my head, the there true was life else. was elsewhere, right? And yeah. uh, and I remember at one point just being like, okay, maybe it's not academia anymore, right? Maybe my true life is actually uh, doing something for the world, right? Like being mm-hmm. involved in justice and, uh, you know, trying to like share the love of Jesus with the world through uh, through some sort of ministry, right? Yeah. That kind of thing. And so I started looking for places where I could do that, right? All the time working at this job that I would describe to lots of people. I may have even said it to you like, oh, I just hate this job, yeah. right? And uh, finally, I found this other role working for an NGO, you know, doing this thing that I thought, oh, perfect. You know, I'm actually going to be helping the world. Yeah. And, uh, and I left my job and everyone at my job was super sad and I was super sad. Yeah in spite of myself, right? Because I did love these people that I'd been working with. Yeah. And, uh, and then I spent a year and a half working at this NGO, which was a great, it's a great place. It was awesome in -hmm. the sense of the stuff that they do is awesome. Mm -hmm. And I discovered working there that this was a hundred percent not who I was. Right. Like I was brought face to face with this realization that I had not been chosen or called into this role it was actually the opposite of who i was but (laughs) but but uh, but uh i think just worth noting right that the the otherness of ourselves right that was um you gotta i mean you gotta get out in the world my friend ben is right now his life slogan he's trying to remind himself of is go Right. Oh, okay. And this, this just thinking to yourself, go and do. And that is where you don't, uh, the unexamined life is not learned sitting in a chair. True. Right. Very true. It's, it's, it's discovered in experience in the world and with others, through others. Yeah. Uh, and, 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 and I mean, of- that's like that, that's for me, it's the reason why, even though I spent 18 months really, really hating my job, like yeah. when I was working for this this NGO, not because I hated the, the organization, no. but because no. I was like, oh my goodness, the, the disconnect between what yes. I am doing, my abilities, my, you know, true deep interests, yeah. you know, my values in yeah. the sense that I had to spend a lot of time away from my, my family and my mm-hmm. kids, mm-hmm. Um, you know, that was brought f- face to face with me. And so I don't actually yeah. regret that time at all yeah. because it was, yeah. to me, it was also discovering Wow, I spent five years working with this engineering firm, yeah, thinking that my true life was elsewhere. When yeah. in reality, it was right there. Yeah. It was there, and I, I, I could regret all of that time that I did that, right? But yeah. the the life lesson of yeah. realizing, oh, I was actually always that was actually the place where I, I did fit, I did yeah. belong, and I was, yeah. you know, um, and like I'm just extremely grateful that they did take me back right like i was able to go back to that but with a totally new set of eyes yeah um well and and so so this uh this story in which he is named right and he's named by somebody else uh the the character in this story comes 
he's just come out of this um, brutal uh, situation and um, and was kind of was basically fighting for survival and then uh, leaving that comes to a point where the struggle is gone and finds his life empty and suddenly doesn't know what he's fighting for, what is worth pursuing, right? And this is where he, um, he, he numbs the emptiness at the, mm. at the bottom of a bottle, right? Uh, is this notion. And he's, he's trying to figure out, uh, I mean, yeah, we don't, we don't get a lot of the introspection from him, but he's, he's in this place where I don't know, we've, many of us have kind of been there where, where there's this emptiness and previously in the situation where, you know, he's fighting for his survival and I won't, you know, go too much more into that, but um, there is, there's, there is some purpose in that struggle. And I've actually, there's a famous a guy who's kind of written this very popular book and he's talking about the experience of community uh, in the bunkers of the military in Afghanistan. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and he talks about how crisis brings people together. It gives you this purpose. And when you come out of that, right, I mean, the famous, uh, the, the, the movie that won the Academy Award by um, a Saving woman Private director, Ryan. a woman director, oh. he, he was a bomb diffuser. Oh, yeah, Caitlin, uh- is it Catherine Bigelow? Catherine Bigelow, that's right. She did. Right. Uh, it's not Zero Dark Thirty, though, right? It's, it's the one before, the one before that. that. Yeah, and and when he returns to to civilian Hurt life, Locker, the Hurt, Hurt Locker. Locker, that's right. And returning to civilian life is just like totally empty. There's nothing mm-hmm. there, right? Mm-hmm. And the it it makes me think a little bit about so all these uh, philosophers, thinkers can be kind of summarized in lots of different ways. But one of the interesting contrasts that I've heard spelled out is the difference between uh, Jung and Freud. And this mm-hmm. is being spelled out by uh, someone else who I should credit. Um, you will know his name. He wrote How Not to Speak of God. Oh, Peter Rollins. Peter Rollins. So yeah, so I'm channeling my version of... Uh, Peter, I'm doing an impression of Peter Rollins doing an impression of Freud talking about Jung. So you need and, to have uh, an Irish accent doing oh, a uh, German accent. Yeah, that. Oh, I will doing work a on Swiss it. accent. I That's think Jung the, is is Jung Swiss or Austrian. I can't remember. I think. No, I don't. Anyways, it doesn't matter. Yeah, uh, that would be a sweet. That would have been uh, the highlight of the episode if I yeah. could have done that. <laughs> so, um, so Freud and. Jung are both looking at kind of what drives human behavior and Freud is looking at a lot of kind of childhood development, our earliest experiences uh, to help us think about the structure of the mind and how we, how we live in the world. And Jung takes a lot of those ideas and then he adapts them further. He's got a lot more ideas about universal human experiences and yes. even this underlying uh, experiences that we all somehow share gets like fairly mystical there kind of yeah 
And I think in the last episode, we mentioned Viktor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning. And yeah. he's a Jungian. And so, again, I don't want to... The, the this impression that I'm doing is going to suggest that Jung is wrong on this account. And so I'd, he talks, Jung, this importance of balance is, is key and recognizing that things are intention and that uh, to find meaning, you need to walk this tension between uh, things that are in balance, right? And this would be the case of where uh, psychologists who would be thinking about the, the different approaches people need to take to life based on their personality traits, right? right? So somebody who's grouchy should probably balance that with some, some notes of generosity to avoid the risk of being too grouchy, right? right? The overly kind person needs to be careful about becoming a doormat, right? Right. Needs to practice <laughs> sticking up for themselves. Yeah. Um, and so all of these kind of notions of balance, but uh, he, the, the suggestion of Freud via Rollins is that this balance is never really achievable. And the emphasis is more on the struggle on the work and to say, we need to get rid of the illusion of the perfect where right. we should be, right. because if you desire this state of balance, uh, if you think that's where you're supposed to be, yeah, you're going to be constantly dissatisfied. And not just that, but it is the the richest meaning is actually found in the um, the pushing through uh, and the sublimation the, of of your yeah yeah and. Uh, we'll say to say more about sublimation. Well, my my understand like Freud always gets pinned with like, yeah, he just wants people to give into their you know most base s sexual urges and things right. like that, right? Yes. But that's so not what Freud is about. Freud right. is actually saying, let's recognize these desires that we have, yeah. and then in the in the sublimation of them, which is to say, even the repression of them, right? Yeah. But the the work of doing it. Uh, explicitly and saying, how do I resist these things? What we're doing is we're, we're creating another kind of energy and to repress them mm -hmm. like in bad faith where we're saying they don't exist. I don't mm -hmm. have this, right. Mm -hmm. That's not real. Mm -hmm. That's, that's where we start becoming like neurotic. Yeah. Uh, right. But, but if you do the sublimation work of saying, I'm going to take that urge and turn it into something else. Yes. Um, that's, that's where you get actual, like, forward motion in your life right and and it's interesting to think about the because they uh, you know he also very... took a lot of cocaine so <laughs> <laughs> um it's it's interesting to there's this very very old tension right i mean in um both in uh, philosophy of ethics and in political philosophy. So in philosophy of ethics, it's framed as the individual versus the group, right? In, poli in politics, it's the individual versus the state and the roles that they have with one another, right? And uh, last time we talked about the sophists and the sophists, uh, they actually, in their cynicism, they actually, uh, and denial of any permanent truth, they actually came to uh, without realizing 
proposed a truth of human nature, right? So when they are saying, because all of these other uh, ideals come turn out to be illusory, you should just be selfish. But that's actually proposing almost a mythology of humans that you will find satisfaction in the pursuit of your own self-interest. Right. And this was actually, I mean, uh, Plato and Socrates were quite explicit in just saying, um, are you sure that's what humans are like? Right. And so while they they generally were quite humble in what they believed they could prove or show, they also thought it was there was a, a great deal of evidence that showed us to be pretty deeply social creatures. Right. And uh, and so the the notion of the the relationship between the group and the individual can't just be wiped away as um, the, the selfishness is the answer. I mean, similarly, I would say you can't just say uh, the group, uh, if everybody sacrifices every individual desire for the sake of some right. concept of the group's proper functioning and nobody's happy in it, then, you know, there's a, then that's not good for anybody. Right. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, th it, I think we can pull a few of these lines together yeah. uh, of, of kind of our discussion because one of the things we're saying is we can't often even know ourselves. That's we right. have to be told by something outside who yep. we are. Yep. Um, and that that has implications for happiness. Yep. Um, and what we, you know, looking at Jung and Freud, what Jung and Freud, what Freud at least is, is getting at is, you know, when you're told what you are, right? That's even the role of the analyst. Right. Mm -hmm. The role of the analyst is in some ways to narrate for you mm -hmm. a story about what your desire means. Mm -hmm. um, and you can choose to do what you will with that. Right. Yeah. If you choose to accept the story that the analyst gives to you, that sets you on a trajectory that you maybe weren't on before. Mm -hmm. Right. If you choose to accept what this Spanish stranger is going to tell you about yeah. who you are. Yeah. Um, that suddenly opens up vistas of possibility that weren't there before. Yeah. Um, and the flip side of it for, at least for my own story of thinking, yeah. this is who I am and realizing more and more that I was telling myself a story that I don't, I don't really know where I got it from. Yeah. Right. And I might, maybe it wasn't even a story that was true. Mm -hmm. uh, right. And it, for sure, it wasn't a story that fit with the realities of my given life. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah, these people who go on uh, American Idol, right, and say I'm going to become this person. It's like, does that fit with the realities of your actual existence? Yes, at the very and, least, your abilities as well, a singer. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, and and that's where so and with the the story of the Freud's sublimation, right? It's it's there's um there's a tension there in the individual and the group, right? Yes. In that, so in these what potential base desires in your basest desires. And I'm not, I don't want to deny that we also have noble desires, right? but we definitely also have base desires. And in our effort to sublimate them, there's going to be strategies that work and strategies that don't work. Right. And that's this, the fact that they have to, um, they have to fit 
the reality of who you are. They have to fit with like, um, because you probably, you can't satisfy both your noble desires and your base desires. Right. So you're kind of playing with this tension of like, does it, if it's totally contrary to, to who you are, this strategy of sublimation, it's not going to work. Yes. And so when you're named by others, it's not, uh, it's not somebody who just, uh, it's not arbitrary, right? It's right. the fact that you're where they have access to you from a different angle. Yeah. And there's also a lot more of them than there are of you. Right. And there's, there's a great deal of insight into who you are and in your ability to kind of learn about yourself, you have the ability to better sublimate and, um, and find that place within that community. And, yeah. uh, and just wanting to highlight, I mean, again, there's these, there's all these trivial little quotes that, uh, I just worry that they sound too trite on their own, but I yeah. do think there's the reality that there's a reason why they've been said so much. And there's the tension between do what you love and love what you do. Right. And I, uh, if I was to give life advice, I would say as a kid, love what you do right? Uh, no, no, do what you love, right? Discover, discover your passions. Yeah. And then when you're older, and you uh, no longer have the freedoms that are generated from being uh, totally cared for by other people. Yes, <laughs> that that's the point at which you, you need to begin to love what you do. And the the Freudian notion of meaning, you will actually find more meaning in that process than you thought, right? right? The, the total freedom um, is, can, can lead to this emptiness of, yeah. uh, but realizing what you value and what is worth sacrificing for. Yeah. And in that, um, it's in, and in that building of that. So we also talked about the notion of people and how there's something that pushes back Right. Yeah. But when you find that relationship that uh, provides yeah. enough value that it's worth um, that it's worth sacrificing for, that's where you're going to find um, the deepest, potentially the deepest meaning and admitting that that is yeah. that's tricky. I don't want to simplify that, but just saying, uh, oh, maybe. And I'm not sure if I've told this story before, but there's a study of um rats right and so whenever the rats that you drop the food in and they get the dopamine release right, right? yes and then later what you do is you drop the they see the food or they see the light that says there's gonna be food but they have to complete a task right in order to get that food the interesting thing is is that uh through the repetition of that exper experiment the dopamine release happens during the work Right. And when they eat the food, they're not even excited anymore. <laughs> and stupid rats. <laughs> stupid rats. I mean, uh, I, I, uh, I love the notion of like the fact that uh, we can learn way more about ourselves from studying rats than right. from studying computers. Anyway, right. and that's true. But uh, yeah. So, so just this um, the reality that, um, Meaning is found not in pure freedom, right? right. Meaning is it, we need something that's worth fighting for. 
and that it happens in relationship, right, with the world around us and and the meaning of who we are, the meaning yeah. of who, of ourselves yeah. is something that we can't really discover on our own. That's right. I yeah. think that's that that to me is like the thing about in and of itself is that it it really goes in two directions. It has one direction which is really trying to get across this idea that we are embedded yeah in our in our communities in our even in not communities like yeah. maybe in uh and I'll, i'm just going to drop this but i'll probably go into it more in the next episode but jean-luc yeah. nancy yeah. who's this french uh, post heideggerian philosopher has yeah. this idea of the inoperable community mm-hmm. and the inoperable oh is it inoperable or inoperative shoot uh Don't oh, worry. inoperative Don't worry. inoperative community anyways yeah. the inoperative community is a community that actually has no real purpose It's Mm -hmm. not something that makes stuff happen. It doesn't create Mm -hmm. things, but Mm -hmm. it's just proximity of people in relation to one another. Mm -hmm. That is enough to create uh, the sort of uh, being with that we, that we need in order to actually get meaning in the world. Right. Like, um, you know, a stranger, a perfect stranger can tell you something about yourself. Um, Yeah. So I I think we'll keep talking about this uh, magic show. Yeah. Uh, and possibly with more spoilers. Well, so far, or... I think we did a good job. We've covered one trick with no spoilers as far true, as I can tell. True. Nice one. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So you still have time, listener, to go check out the magic show if you haven't yet. Yeah. Highly recommend it. Uh, but it's not a magic show. <laughs> but it's not a magic show. And uh, yeah, we're going to, we're just going to keep exploring some of the ideas that, um, that you could, you could, find if you're ready to overthink about the show exactly exactly cool awesome uh send us a line if you have anything to to say uh subjects in process podcast at gmail.com anything else john no just uh of course we'd love to hear from you and as always jeff it's been great chatting lovely to chat talk to you later talk to you later (laughs) Bye. bye